We're starting a new series this morning called This Is Us. Talking about us, what the us's are. How many us's do you have in your life? Because once you have me plus you, we have an us. And there are a lot of us's that each of us have in our lives. And us, how many of you know, having an us and becoming an us complicates things. And be, once you become an us, it creates problems. Me plus you equals us. It's a simple grammatical equation, but causes profound complexity when those pronouns come together. One plus one equals normally. It does, right? Except when God says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. So in that case, God says one plus one equals one. And this is where us gets complicated because one plus one equals one. In fact, later in God's word, he says, uh, he says three chords, a chord of three chords is not easily broken. Now that's three chords. That's me plus you plus God. Now we have three, and now one plus one plus one equals not three, but one again. And it gets complicated at times. Whenever there's an us, whenever me plus you comes together, it gets complicated. And there are all kinds of us's in our lives. You'll send out cards over the next few weeks and it'll be from us. Merry Christmas from us. You'll give gifts from us. You show up at somebody's door. It's us. But what about the us's in your life? It complicates things once you become an us. Tension comes in in pretty much all of our us's in our lives. And most maybe remarkably in the us's that are closest to us, right? The ones you live with in your house, those that you are uh, living with on a regular basis. It's amazing how the people that we know the best, we live the closest to, we care about the most, and we know they care the most about us, get on our nerves the most. And they aggravate us and they frustrate us. But there's complications with us. I remember one day when I was uh, younger, maybe, a, I don't even know if I was a teenager yet, maybe I was in those tween ages, and I was fighting with my sister that one time that we fought, and my mother happened to see it just that one time we fought with one of my sisters, and she said something that I've never forgotten and that stopped me in my tracks instantly. She said, uh, you treat your friends better than you treat your family. And when she said that statement, two things I knew were instantly true. One, she was right. Two, it should not be so. Because we get these us's in our lives that aggravate us and that get on our nerves and we have a hard time getting along with them. Let me illustrate for you the fact that some things are easier when there's not an us. Do you know that? Some things are easier when it's just me or just you. Some things are easier when there's not an us. Let me give you this example. My wife Wendy is away for a few days, cause, and I always try and preach a marriage message with Wendy away. Just send her away. <laughs> it's a good time for me to talk about marriage. You can't verify what I'm saying. Um, so, no, not really. That's not how I planned it. But she does happen to be away. And this is true about her being away. Every day since Wendy has been away... I have made the bed. And I don't always make the bed when she's there, but every day since she was away, I have made the bed. Now, I would appreciate you not telling her that when she gets back, because I really don't want to set those expectations and keep those expectations there when she gets back. Now, I made the bed even though it's just me and I make the bed every day, but when there's two of us there, we don't make the bed every day. And you might say, well, isn't it easier to make the bed when there's two of you there? And if you're saying that, all I know about you, you've never been married. 
Because it's not easier to make the bed when there's two of you there for two reasons. One is because the bed is more messed up because there's two of you. Right now, I just, I, I roll out of bed this morning. I throw that comforter up, put some pillows down, done. Bed made. What's next on the agenda? We've already conquered something today. But that's one reason. But the second reason why it's harder with two people is, and this is an important one, when it's just me, I know who is going to make the bed. When there's someone else there, now we have to have a conversation. We have to figure this out of who is going to make the bed. And you might think this is a simple conversation, but if you think that, the one thing I know about you is you're probably not married or haven't been married because it's not a simple conversation. In fact, it's not a conversation that even happens right away. It's a conversation that happens in your head way before it happens between two people happens with bed making, but maybe it happens with other things in your marriage if you're married. And the conversation maybe goes something like this. She'll probably make the bed. I'm going to, I got up. I got up before her. She's still in bed. I'm going to go take my shower and she'll probably make the bed. Now I get out of my shower. I get back. She's out of bed, but the bed's not made. And I think, well, She's just going to take care of her morning routine. And when she comes back, she's going to make the bed. After all, she was the last one out of the bed. And that's the rule. You're the last one out of the bed. You make the bed. I can't very well make the bed while you're in it. So if I get up before you and you get up after me, you've got to make the bed. But now she's leaving and she's going out the door and she didn't make the bed. What does she expect? I couldn't very well make the bed. Why didn't she make the bed? Is she expecting me to make the bed after she gets out? Like I'm supposed to just work around her schedule, waking up and then go and make the bed? I made the bed yesterday. I made the bed the day before. Every time I get up after her, I make the bed. Does she even care about making the bed? Did she learn to make the bed when she was a child? Did I marry a non-bed maker? Are any of you non-bed makers? Yeah. How many of you now this, as I was reading about bed making a little bit, not much, just a little bit, I learned that some people do this and I want to know if anyone's bold enough if you do this. How many of you, if you have not made the bed in the morning, you will come home at night and make the bed before you go to sleep in it? Oh, there are some, wow, I do not understand you people. That is, that is some stuff there. Um, make the bed before you sleep in it. All right. Well, anyways, let's get back to that. What other areas of life doesn't she take care of? I think I'm doing more than my fair share in this marriage. She's not doing her part, carrying her weight. Did her mother make her bed for her? Does she think I'm like her mother or a maid here to work for her? She doesn't appreciate me. She doesn't respect me. Oh no, our marriage is falling apart. I don't see how this is going to work. We have problems. My mom warned me about this. I can't believe she doesn't care about our marriage. We need to talk about this. Well, when are we going to talk about it? How are we going to talk about it? Maybe in the morning when we get together, we'll talk about it. I'll bring it up, but how do I bring it up? I don't want to embarrass her if she comes from a family of non-bed makers. Maybe I can just ask, do you think we should make the bed? No, that's too passive-aggressive. I have to be more assertive in my conversation. So I say, are you going to make the bed? But that's too accusative. Maybe we could just write a note. Maybe I could just write a note. Maybe we can come up with a chart to figure it out. On these days, you make the bed. On these days, I make the bed. Why is this so hard? 
I need to talk to someone about it. Who can I pray about this? God, can you help me? I can't believe this is happening. Meanwhile, my wife is driving to work and the thought comes into her mind, did I make the bed? I think I forgot to make the bed. Oh, well, no big deal. (laughs) And having an us complicates things. This doesn't happen when it's just me. My wife's been away for a few days. I get up, I make the bed, done, move on to something else. But we have these conversations in our minds. It's not just about bed making. It's about everything in the relationship that comes up. Am I doing my part? Are you doing your part? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing this? Why am I doing this? Because once a me plus a you becomes an us, things get complicated. One of the challenges are the conflicts and the tension that comes about being married and being in a relationship between a husband and a wife. Once there is someone else who sees the world differently, someone with different past experiences, someone with different values, Different hopes, different dreams. Once there's an us, you have two people who respond differently and work differently and there comes tension and there comes conflict in the relationship. I'm a morning person. Anyone else a morning person? Where's my tribe out there? We're morning people, right? Yeah, you've been up a while. You've got stuff done already, right? We're morning people. How many of you are night people? The rest of you night people? Yeah, you're gonna be, you night people, yeah. My wife, Wendy, is a night person. I would rather go to bed when I'm tired and just get up early and get things done in the morning and get a fresh start. She would rather have everything done and then go to bed knowing everything's done and then sleep a little later, and which is fine if we're doing our own thing. If we're doing our own thing, it's fine. She does not care that I get up at 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning to get ready for church. I do not care that she stays up till 1 a.m. working on spreadsheets. That's your thing. This is my thing. Whatever. Do you think? But when it, then there are some things, though, where it comes together, like when we have guests over and it's late at night and now the kitchen is full of dishes. And then she wants to get the kitchen clean and the dishes done and go to bed knowing there's a nice clean kitchen and just get up in the morning and not worry about it. I am tired and I don't want to deal with dishes and I want to go to sleep and just do it in the morning. Except I can't sleep because every clang of a dish is a dagger of guilt in my heart that I should be downstairs helping with the dishes but I'm not and I won't and I don't. So what's the solution to all this? Have your kids do the dishes, I think. You wake them up and you get them. You say, you do the dishes. That's not it. That's not it. But we have these fights and we have these conflicts. And why do we have them? We have tension. Andy Stanley, Pastor Andy Stanley, I love the statement he says. He says, pay attention to the tension. And I think in marriage, this is one of those places where you need to pay attention to the tension. That you have tension in your relationship and it should be like a dashboard light on your soul in your relationship to say there's tension here. I need to pay attention. There's something going on here in our relationship that I need to pay attention to. You know those dashboard lights when they come on, right? You look at them, you ignore them a little while and you can because they're there to tell you, look, if you don't pay attention to this, something is going to happen that will be a problem. 
And tension in your relationship is like that. It's like that dashboard light in your relationship that says, pay attention to this, because if you don't pay attention, it will be a problem down the road. This car will ground to a halt. It will no longer do what you wanted it to do if you don't pay attention to what's going wrong, if you don't pay attention to the tension in your relationship. My friends and I, when we first started driving, we used to call those idiot lights. I don't know if you call them idiot lights. That's probably not a very nice term. But the reason we called it that, we were kind of into cars. And so we figured if your light on your dashboard came on, it's because you didn't pay attention. You didn't do something beforehand that should have kept that light from coming on, like put air in your tires or change your oil. Do stuff so the lights don't come on. And it's similar in your relationship and mine that there are things we ought to be doing that will keep the lights from coming on. But if they come on, pay attention. Pay attention to that tension in your relationship. So where does it come from? The Bible gives us a very clear explanation to where the fighting and the quarreling in relationships come from. In the book of James, uh, we have these words of the apostle James to a church. And they're actually about, uh, he's writing to a church that was fighting and quarreling. But as I read them, I think he could have been just writing to a husband and wife who were fighting and quarreling. Because he starts with this question, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? I'm like, I'd love to know. Some of you in marriage are going, yes, what causes this? Why are we doing this again? Why are we here again? Why is this happening? James says, uh, the word of God says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here's what God is saying to us in his word, that oftentimes the reason you are fighting in your marriage, the reason you are fighting in your relationships is because you want something and you're not getting it. And isn't that true? That if we're honest with ourselves, that a lot of times we end up fighting with each other is because I want something and I'm not getting it. And not only that, I think you may be standing in the way. I think you may not be helping me get it, but I think you may be preventing me from getting it. You want something. And James goes on and says, the reason you don't have what you want is because you don't ask for it. But even when you ask for it, you ask with selfish motives. I just want it for me. I don't want it for us. I want it for me. And so you will fight and you will quarrel and you will have tension in your relationships Because of this, and it happens all the time. Even if there's a logical explanation for why you're not getting what you want, we still get aggravated, don't we? How many of you had this happen? You you were setting money aside for a vacation with the family, and you were so looking forward to that vacation. But then something comes up. Her parents got sick. His parents, you know, had a tragedy happen, and now we're going to take that money for the vacation, and we're going to go spend time and be with our family. And you know that's the right thing to do. You know logically that's what you should do. You've even decided you're going to do it, but it still frustrates you because you really wanted that vacation. You still want to go on that vacation, and you're not getting what you want. And so now we're arguing, but we're not arguing about the vacation, and we're not arguing about going to visit your parents, because I know logically that doesn't make sense, but I'm still arguing with you because I'm not getting what I want. And it causes this friction in our relationship. 
and it causes these difficulties in our relationship. But what, so what's the alternative? What's the alternative? How, how can we, if we pay attention to the tension, how can we act and live differently than fighting and quarreling with each other? In the last few minutes we have together this morning, I want us to look at that. And I want to look at a passage of scripture that maybe, and I think, is probably going to be very familiar to many of us. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, even if you've not read your Bible much, I'm going to guess that the pastor's scripture I'm going to share with you and we're going to look at this morning is going to be very familiar with you, that you've heard it before, that you know it, but you probably have never heard it in the context, I never have at least, in the context of a sermon about relationships or in the context of a sermon about marriage, but I think it very directly applies to that situation and can help us relieve the tension and relieve much of the fighting and quarreling that happens in our marriages. The passage of scripture I want us to look at, many of you grew up maybe calling it the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. And I think this passage replies to marriage remarkably well. In fact, over the next four weeks, as we're in that This Is Us series, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer and applying it to different relationships in our lives. This week, we're looking at marriage. Next week, we're going to look at the us of uh, family and parenting. The following week, we'll look at the us of dating, and we'll ask the question, should there be an us? And then the last week, we're going to look at uh, what happens when us has problems and relationships don't work out the way that we had hoped. But, so that's the four weeks of This Is Us, and we're going to be using the Lord's Prayer as a bit of a lens for that as we process this. And uh, here's what the prayer said, when the disciples of Jesus asked him how to pray, here's what he said. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some translations say, deliver us from the evil one. Some of you immediately are thinking, that's the part we're going to talk about this morning. I will tell you uh, that there is an evil one who wants to see your marriage fail. It is not your spouse. That's not what Jesus is talking about there. And lead us not into temptation, maybe another one that you could apply easily, uh, but we're not going there either. What I want us to notice about this prayer is something that we might overlook very quickly and very easily the number of times that you've said it and I've said it, and that is that it is in the first person plural. It is not my father, it is our father. It is a prayer that is to be prayed by an us. It is a prayer that is to be prayed with us together and not only conscious of God, but conscious of the other people around us. It is our Father. And I think in a marriage, in a Christian marriage especially, that many of the tensions that we experience, many of the fights that we experience can be resolved if we would simply approach it as our Father together. See, it's an us. It's a plural. See, sometimes I can come to God and I just come to God because I want God to support my agenda. And I want God to just validate what I want. 
and just make my point instead of us both approaching God and saying, our Father. When we as a husband and wife will approach life that way, when we will look at it as our Father, there's a couple things that are theologically true or that we are saying are theologically true. And like most things in life, if you will get your theology right, then your actions and your life will follow in the way that God intends. And our Father, just those two words, is an extremely theological statement that you are making. Our Father. When you say our Father, one of the things that you are saying is we are family. We are part of the same family. We have one father. We are children of the same family. And that may seem uh, rudimentary to you and simple, but think about it this way. My wife was my sister in Christ long before she is my wife, and she will be my sister in Christ long after she is no longer my wife. Because Jesus said when in heaven, men and women are not given in marriage the way that they are here on earth. We're more like the angels. We will identify and recognize each other, but there will not be marriage because we will be married to Christ. And he is the one that will get our attention and our, and, and our desire, the object of our desire. We will not be married to one another. So therefore, my wife, if God allows us to be married for 50, 60, 70 years, whatever that might be, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of time that she is my sister in Christ and not my wife. We are part of the family of God. And so when we say our Father, we recognize that we are one family pulling in the same direction, submitting to one Father. And I need to care for her, not just as my wife, and I married you so you can give me what I want, but as a sister in Christ who's journeying with God and becoming all that God has created her to be. It's my family member, caring for her and loving her. We're not only part of the same family, but we are also under the same authority. When I say our father, I'm recognizing I'm the child. We're the children. God's the father. He's the authority. And we recognize we are under the same authority. What we do is we approach God and we agree that the authority is not the latest book. It's not the latest television show. It's not the latest blog post that you read. It's not your friends. It's not my friends. It's not your parents. It's not my parents. It's not what I think. It's not what you think. Our father has to have the final word and be the final authority in our relationship. And so if we will approach it that way, that will relieve much of the tension because we say, God, you're the father. You're the one. We look to you. What do you say about this situation? But finally, not only is we have the same authority, but we agree to submit to that authority. See, this wasn't given in 21st century North America where a lot of times it seems like kids have more power than the parents in their family. This is given in, first, in the first century context where children obeyed their parents. And when the parents spoke, that was their last word and there was an obedience. So when, if I'm going to pray a prayer that says, our father, what I'm saying is, you're the father, we're the children. What you say, we will submit to. Because we trust that you are good. We trust that you will provide. We trust that you are in control. We will trust you because we are the children and you are the father. And so we come as husband and wife and we bow before our father. And we say what God wants, 
is what we will submit to and what we will obey in our relationship. Let's pursue what God wants. Now, I understand I'm talking about a marriage between a man and a woman who both follow Christ, and some of you, that's not your situation. For one reason or another, you're married to someone, either maybe they, you came to Christ and your spouse has not come to Christ, or maybe your spouse walked away from Christ, or for whatever reason, you're a follower of Jesus and your spouse isn't, and that this message, and you would say, I'd love, Pastor, for, for me and my spouse just to stay our father wants. And I understand that situation's a little different. We're not going into it this morning, but 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addresses your exact situation. And if you have not read it, I'd encourage you to take some time later this week to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, because there is grace for God in the midst of that situation for you, and a purpose for you in the midst of that situation um, that you are in. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. So our Father is one place to start, but the second thing and the final thing I want to talk about is your kingdom come. Your will be done. Because that's the other part. Because a lot of times I think we come into marriage and we want to build my kingdom and we want to exercise my will. And we come into it and we don't say your kingdom, God. We say my kingdom, And let me just illustrate for you a little bit what that, I think, looks like this morning. And I'm going to have, I need a couple, I'm going to ask for a couple to join me on the stage up here this morning. Um, So, I have any volunteers that you will come up. I'm just going to, no, it's not hard. I'm just going to ask you to share about your last conflict that you had in your marriage (laughs) before everyone. Uh, Wow, Pastor Mark. Oh, No. I'm going to take, I used Aaron and Jesse in the first service. I'm taking the Fallons this service. I'm drafting them. I'm going to ask Tom and Kelly to come up. And I'm going to ask them. They don't have to share their last conflict. Unless you really want to. No. No, you probably would. I don't want to do that. We don't have to do that. We're going to have Tom and Kelly Fallon. Would you give them a hand as they come up? Um, Yeah, no, that's okay. You don't need. Here's what I want you to do. All right. I'm going to stand, stand on opposite sides here. We're going to illustrate this. Kelly over here, Tom here. So first, my kingdom. I think the posture many of us have. So you got your arms crossed. You've got, Tom, you're a boxer, right? Uh, I want to see your best. If you were posing for the poster and you and Kelly were fighting, what's your pose that you are, you're, going to, you're going to put up there? Okay, all right. No, not that close, Rock. You're fighting. All right, yeah. All right. So this is the my kingdom posture, right? I've got what I want. You've got what you want. We're standing in each other's way. We are facing off against each other. This is the James 4 posture. I want something and I'm not getting it from you. And you are standing in my way because I came into this marriage wanting some things and I thought you were going to help me get them. And you're not. And I thought I was going to change you. And I thought you were going to become everything that you're supposed to be to help me get what I want. (laughs) And it's not working. So we fight and we quarrel. And some of you, this is your posture. All right, I got to get the two of you together. So another posture, hold hands, shoulder to shoulder, facing towards the congregation. All right, now some of you, this is your posture. You are, and I'm going to call this the our kingdom posture. This is our kingdom. We are moving in the same direction. We're holding hands. We're shoulder to shoulder. We're pulling in the same direction. We got the same goals. We got the same desires. We don't fight a lot. 
And some of you look at this couple and you say, wow, they're not fighting. They're doing great. What are they doing? How can we be like that? I'd love it if we just wouldn't fight. And you're building your, your kingdom and you are building your amazing home and you're with your amazing kids and your amazing life that you have and you're looking out and we're building our kingdom and this is great. But the only thing wrong with the our kingdom posture is their back is to the cross and God is not the object of their kingdom. We're just building our kingdom. So we get along and we don't fight and that's good if your ultimate goal is just not fighting. But if you're a Christian and you're a follower of Jesus, just not fighting is too low of a goal. Just getting along is making a good thing an ultimate thing. And some of you are like, you're like, man, if we could just not fight. And that's a good start, right? We're going to get together. But it's not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is you have been brought together as a husband and wife to serve and glorify God and to bring honor to his name. And if you are building our kingdom with your back to the cross, there is, an eter- there is no eternal significance to what you are doing. So the final posture, if you guys will turn around, save, stand the same way with your hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, facing the cross. Now this is the God's kingdom posture. And we are pursuing God's kingdom together. We are shoulder to shoulder. And this is God's kingdom together. And this is not my kingdom. This is not our kingdom. This is God's kingdom. And we better let Tom and Kelly sit back down. Would you give them a hand? As they... <laughs> I have just given you an illustration you will never forget. And this is, <laughs> thank you, Tom and Kelly. But this is it, Right? I mean, a lot of us go into it with this posture and it's my kingdom, I'm gonna build it and I am mad and we are fighting because I'm not getting what I want. And some of us are in that our kingdom perspective. I call that, if I was gonna use a scripture, I'd look at that as the Tower of Babel posture, right? The Tower of Babel, if you, I'm not gonna go into the whole Old Testament story, but they were building a tower, all these people came together and they were doing it all together, but for their own name, for their own glory, not for God. And that's what happens sometimes. Couples, they build our kingdom. I'm not, there are couples who know nothing about Jesus who have very happy marriages because they're moving in the same direction and they're building their kingdom. That can happen. I'm not gonna stand up and tell you you'll never find a happy couple who doesn't follow Jesus. That's not true. But to have eternal significance, to make a difference in eternity, and if you are a follower of Christ, you can't be stop at just not fighting and building our kingdom. It has to turn around, and you have to say, our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, in our marriage as it is in heaven, in your kingdom, let your will be done, let your kingdom come. The ultimate purpose of a husband and wife coming together is to bring honor to God that has created them and brought them together to be a witness to the world of how God loves his church, of what a faithful covenant God looks like when he is in relationship with his people. That is the ultimate purpose of a Christian covenant marriage. So it's not my way, it's not our way, but it's God's way. Finally, how do you get there? Four application practical points as we close out this morning. The first one you already heard. You want to go to the Wednesday night class. Tom and Kelly will be there. They're fun people. They're, they're, uh, go to the Wednesday night class starting this Wednesday at 6.30. Be a part of that. Just go to things that are going to refresh and enrich your marriage. Think about your marriage. Too often we're going through life and we're not thinking about it. You got married on the altar and you put the rest on cruise control. 
and you thought it's just going to take care of itself. Doesn't doesn't work that way. There's no neutral in your marriage. You got to keep investing. You got to keep learning. You got to keep loving. So go to the class on Wednesday night, six thirty this Wednesday. Two, get yourself a marriage mentor. Get yourself a mentor, a marriage. Get yourself a marriage coach, a couple that is a little further down the road than you. They're a little further down the line. They're not perfect. They don't know everything. I'm not talking about professional counselors. I'm just saying a couple that's a little further down the road. Their kids are a little older. They've been walking with the Lord a little longer. They have a little bit more life behind them. And ask them to mentor you. Ask them to lead you. Wendy and I have done this numerous times in our marriage where we've seen a couple in church and we said, we want to know what they know. We want to know what they know about parenting. We want to know what they know about marriage and being married to one another. You say, well, how do I find a marriage mentor? I'm glad you asked. Take out your Connect card. On the back of your Connect card, where it's on the prayer card on the bottom, there is a spot there that says, I would like to, and you can check off, enroll in the marriage mentoring ministry. We have, for the last several months, been training mentors in the church to serve as mentors in marriages. We're starting and launching this morning our marriage mentor ministry led by Elaine and Bernie Driscoll, and they have been training and going through the training and helping raise up marriage mentors so that we can have people that will walk alongside other couples during different stages, and we match them up with people who would be a, we feel like would be a good fit, and if you want a marriage mentor, you say, you know what, we need that. It's not... And we're not talking about, like I said, professional counseling. We're not talking about that, you know, this is different than that. This This is a couple that follows Jesus helping you as a couple to follow Jesus and how to do that and how to love one another. So you can check off that. We'll put your name on the front, a way for us to contact you. Elaine and Bernie uh, will reach out to you and contact you and put, I'd like to enroll in the marriage mentoring ministry. There is a basket on the Connect Center in the hallway on your way out. Put that card in that basket and we will help connect you with a marriage mentor. So go to the class, get a marriage mentor. What's the third thing you can do? Third thing you can do is make two lists. Here's your homework this week. Make two lists. Saw a post by Seth Godin, who's not talking about marriage. He talks about marketing. But I thought the strategy he said about marketing and life really applies to marriage as well. And that's this. Make two lists. On the first list, identify all the grievances, disrespects, difficulties, tensions, all the unmade beds in your marriage. Where are the lights that are on? Where are the tensions? Where are the difficulties? Where are the situations that work against you? Where are misaligned expectations? Where are bad breaks, meddling outsiders, bad situations, and unfair expectations? Put that down on the first list. It's all legitimate. It's all real. It's all painful. It's all there. The bed literally isn't made. There's pain. There's hurt. There's things that go on for sure. Put them on the list. Pay attention to the tension. But on the second list, write down all of the great things about your marriage. Write down all the privileges. Write down all the advantages. Write down all the opportunities. Write down all the made bets. Write down all the places where you get the benefit of the doubt. Write down your support and your partnership. Write down your shared knowledge and understanding, your trust, your enlarged perspective, all the reasons you married your spouse, all the blessings, all the things you love about that person. Write that down on that second list. And then take one list and put it in a drawer. 
And don't look at it that often. Maybe once a quarter, a couple times a year. Take it out and look at it just to remind you that we're paying attention to the tension. These are things that need to be addressed. These are things that have gone on and, and they, I'm not ignoring them, but they're there. Take another list and tape it to your bathroom mirror and have it there and look at it every day. You get to decide which list goes where. And your decision about which list goes where will determine much about your outlook and I think your joy in your marriage. Because if I will wake up every day looking at and being reminded about those things that I can believe the best about my spouse, even when there's difficulty, remember those blessings. Are there, I'm not denying that there are difficulties, not denying that there are hard times, but I think a lot of times when we focus on those hard times, we deny the good that is present as well. You can decide which list. You can wake up and look at that miserable list every day, and a lot of us do. Let's be honest. Before you get out of bed, you've already got a list of things that the other problem, there's problems with the other person before they even get out of bed. Oh, you're always like this. Oh, you never do this. Oh, I knew you'd do that. I knew you'd say that. We can start with that list. We can keep that one in front of us. That's going to make things really difficult. You get to decide which list goes where. And the truth is, you and I make that decision every day, maybe not with a physical list, but we make it every day. Fourth thing, and finally, is this. Recognize this, uh, that as we close, and I'm going to ask our music ministry to return, come up. Uh, Fourth and finally is this. Recognize that you don't in yourself have the strength to live out the vows and the commitments and be the spouse that God has completely called you to be, that he requires you to lean upon the Holy Spirit, that he requires you to trust him and be dependent upon him. You don't have the strength in yourself to be the person in marriage that God expects you to be. You don't. Because you are made to abide in Christ. You are made to depend on God. And so you don't have the strength to live out this vow that you have made, but God within you will give you this strength. And so I don't want you walking out of here today thinking, well, here's a list of other things Pastor Rick has given me to do. Now I'll try these. No, there's some things that'll help. There's some things that'll, I think, help us along the way. But ultimately, it's God. Ultimately, that's where our hope is. Ultimately, our hope is in the Lord, not in your strength, not in your power, not in your ability. Ultimately, your hope is in the God who raises the dead. Because some of you are in marriages that you think are dead. Some of you are in situations that you think are hopeless. But don't deny the power of the God who's able to raise the dead, who's able to bring life where there's been death who's able to bring hope where there's been hopelessness. And you just need some of you to just fall on your knees this morning at this altar together and just say, Our Father, your kingdom come. Because God is the one you need to humble yourself, to recognize in yourself, God, where are the places where I've been fighting for my kingdom that I just need to let go of it? I need to say, God, I've been fighting for my kingdom And I need to release that and yield myself to your kingdom. 
And so here's what we're going to do as we close these last couple minutes. We're going to open these altars for you to respond as the team sings. And you're going to sing a song that I think is really appropriate. That God, you're the way maker. You're the promise keeper. And he is. And he is the one that can make that way in your marriage that no one else can make it. No one else has been able to break through. So we're going to sing this song. I'm going to invite you, if you're here, maybe as a husband and a wife, or maybe you're here without your spouse, but you know you just need to pray this prayer. You need this. You need God in your marriage. You need to yield yourself to him. Come and spend some time kneeling at these altars. I'll ask any of our elders, leaders, ministry leaders, our marriage mentors that are here, that you would come and pray for those as they come and pray. Truth is, none of us have perfect marriages, and anyone that lays their hand on you to pray for you is just someone who has also fought battles and is fighting battles and is trusting God to lead them in their marriage. And all of us have experienced those places. So would you stand with me and I'll pray and then after I pray, as the team sings, please, if you just need to come forward, you just need to say, Our Father, your kingdom come in our marriage. You would do that and we'll pray for you. Lord, God, you are the author of marriage. You have created it. You have given it as a gift. And yet, Lord, we understand that in this broken, hurting world that we are a part of, there are difficulties that come with it because we are sinful men and sinful women who come together in sinful families that are tainted and touched by our brokenness individually. And so, Lord, we ask that you would extend your healing touch. And I pray for those marriages that are here this morning that are on the brink, that feel totally lost, that feel totally gone, that feel hopeless. Lord, that today the God of the resurrection, the God who is able to raise the dead, that you would breathe life into marriages today that need that life, that you would raise the dead and bring love where there has only been anger and bitterness. Lord, that you would do what only you can do and what no man has been able to do to this point. Lord, that you would break hearts and spirits that need to be broken so that we would be humble before you. Father, I pray for those marriages that are doing great, that you would continue to encourage them and strengthen them. May they continue on that path of life, Lord, and and thrive before you. And God, for those ones that are just lukewarm, they're living as roommates, they haven't got divorced because they don't believe in it, but they're only staying together out of obligation. Lord, would you breathe life into those situations? Would you bring a renewed love for one another? Would you bring a renewed hope and a renewed passion for your mission, for your kingdom, and for each other, Lord? Would you bring renewed purpose and passion to those relationships? Would you stoke those flames that have dwindled down to coals and breathe on them so that they might become a burning fire for you and for each other? Lord, bless us and guide us and hear our prayers even as we come. In Jesus' name, amen.